From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Professor Jillian Folger will talk to us about mantle plumes. So stay tuned for all this here on the Rock Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, when we think about scientific discoveries, we think of the very small, the very large, and the universal, but what happens beneath our feet could be just as interesting and profound in terms of the fate of our planet. Well, joining us today is our special guest, uh, Professor Jillian Folger from Durham University. She is professor of geophysics in their department of or sciences. Professor Folger, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure, Frank. So, uh, it looks like you're doing very exciting work in terms of what's happening uh, inside the Earth itself. So, um, you know, to give us a little background, could you tell us a little bit of some of the basic concepts which uh, we should be familiar with? Well, um, we should be familiar with the plate tectonic hypothesis, and uh, that is the hypothesis that the surface of the Earth is divided into several large plates which are all moving relative to one another. And one magical thing about this hypothesis is that it can explain why volcanoes are where they are. Almost all the volcanoes on the surface of the Earth are at the edges of the plates, where these plates are moving relative to one another. The surface of the Earth is cracked and magma can leak up from underneath. The problem, the one, the one challenge with that hypothesis is that there are some volcanoes which it seems as though the hypothesis can't explain. For example, Hawaii is the main one because Hawaii is smack in the rib- middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's about as far away as any point on Earth that you can get from the edge of a plate, and yet this huge volcano is occurring there. So it seems that that volcano doesn't fit into the pattern. And so scientists have for many years been trying to figure out why volcanoes like that and some other volcanoes like Reunion, for example, why they exist. So these plates, uh, I mean, could you give us a little analogy here? Let's say the the Earth was, uh, say, the size of an apple. Would you say the plates are like the skins, but there are cracks, uh, you know, around the around the apple? Um, Yes, that's a good analogy. And uh, another one might be to compare the Earth to a football. So um, a football uh, has got a kind of diamond pattern on it. But if you imagine a football, instead of uh, many, many sections of leather being sewn together to form the football, there were just seven big pieces of leather all sewn together to form the football, then uh, this, this is something we could compare to the Earth. I see. And, and then um, the the thickness would be, you know, what I, I guess in um, 
geophysical terms, it's a few miles thick. Is that right? Um, the, the thickness would be the equivalent of putting a sticking plaster on the surface of the football. You mentioned that Hawaii is one of the big exceptions. Is it possible that plates are just, just like uh, unevenness where certain parts are just thinner than others? Well, of course, um, that certainly does happen. The, um, the thick, brittle outer shell of the Earth, uh, you know, you could compare it to an egg, for example, where the egg goes kind of um, can flow inside, it's liquid inside. Um, but there's a brittle outer shell, so the Earth has a brittle outer shell. And yes, it is thinner and thicker in some places, but um, the problem with Hawaii is that Hawaii lies right in the very middle of one of these big sections. And uh, when scientists explained chains of volcanoes as occurring along the edges of the sections, mm -hmm. they felt that it was difficult to explain Hawaii. So anyway, scientists came up with a, a kind of separate theory to explain places like Hawaii and Reunion. And they suggested that um, chimneys of hot rock rose up from the Earth's core and punched through this outer brittle shell to form these uh, very unusual volcanoes. And they called those chimneys of hot rock mantle plumes. Okay, and then, um, you know, to give us a little visualization of what's happening um, below the plates, typically we think of it as the upper and the lower mantle layer, and then uh, beneath that is the the molten core, is that right? That's correct, yes. Okay, but then we're finding that within the, the mantle itself there are uh, uneven parts where, you know, uh, plumes could be accessed. Well, this was the theory, Frank. And so uh, this was proposed um, 19, in 1971, about 40 years ago. And uh, this was an excellent suggestion. This was a really beautiful theory. And uh, scientists um, went out to test the theory because, you know, this is what science is all about. It's about making a hypothesis and then going out and testing it. Mm -hmm. So for 40 years, 45 years, scientists have been testing this hypothesis and many scientists are now beginning to feel that the hypothesis is failing, that it, it can't explain the observations. Uh, nobody can find uh, an image of one of them in the inside of the Earth. And so this theory, which has been very important in Earth science for 45 years, is beginning to disintegrate. Mm -hmm. And we're going through a very exciting period here where we may be looking at a major paradigm change in the earth sciences. You know, you mentioned that there are other places around the world where uh, similar uh, observations have been made. What about, say, like Yellowstone? Is that where two plates meet, or is that where an example of these uh, chimney plumes? Well, uh, Yellowstone is not where two plates move. It's another location in the very center of one of these plates, one of these sections. There's no boundary there. Um, and so again, this is a big volcano in the middle of a plate, and uh, people applied the plume hypothesis to Yellowstone as well. In terms of the the behavior uh, of these, uh, you know, volcanoes or hotspots, are they different? Do they behave differently from the volcanoes near the, you know, where the plates meet? Well, there are some differences and some similarities, and it, it's 
very difficult to generalize. So um, this is one challenge that scientists faced when they tried to use the plume hypothesis because they looked at Hawaii and Yellowstone, Iceland, Reunion, the Azores, all these places people suggested there are plumes, but all these places are different. So um, this is a problem. Uh, you know, if, if there was one um, process forming these volcanoes, you would expect the volcanoes all to be very similar. But of course, everybody knows that um, Yellowstone is not similar to Hawaii. Great. And then in terms of the, you know, the actual tools you use, um, you use seismic imaging and of course uh, a lot of modeling, but you know, what, what are some of the interesting developments in, in terms of how you characterize um, you know, these phenomenons? Well, in my view, one of the most interesting things about seismic imaging is the discovery that we're beginning to understand what it can be used for. So, you know, you can't use one tool to do everything. For example, you know, if you have some illness, um, you don't use um, chemotherapy to cure every illness. You use different techniques. You use surgery for this, chemotherapy for that, or medicine for some other illness. And it's the same with all sciences, that you need to use the appropriate tool for the appropriate task. And uh, we're beginning to realize that seismic imaging is not going to answer the question of whether plumes exist or not. Uh, the reason for this is because a tremendous lot of seismic imaging has now been applied to Yellowstone. And before the imaging was done, scientists were divided as to whether there's a plume beneath Yellowstone. And now the imaging has been done, scientists are still divided because people interpret these images differently. So it looks as though seismic imaging is not going to be the, um, the silver bullet that's going to answer this question. And what exactly uh, is seismic imaging? Is it using ultrasound or some other type of wave? Um, seismic imaging is uh, analogous to the CAT scanning that's done in hospitals when, when a, you know, a person needs to be researched. Um, they take an image of the inside of your body. Mm -hmm. um, seismic tomography is basically the same approach, except we use earthquake waves as the energy source instead of x-rays or or uh, ultrasound. So there's no easy way at this moment to actually drill down and t take measurements, is there? Unfortunately, you'd have to drill down about a thousand kilometers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, that's not going to work either. <laughs> I, I guess your drill bill will melt pretty soon, right? Yeah. Um, what we are beginning to realize is that it's not really a question of making a hypothesis and then going out to prove that it's right. That's not the way we should be going. What we should be doing is uh, proposing many hypotheses and then going out and seeing if they fulfill predictions. So although it doesn't seem quite so um, neat and tidy, um, what we have to do is to come up with more and more hypotheses, say what the predictions of these hypotheses are, and then go out into the field and test those predictions. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is, um, this is sometimes a difficult lesson to learn because what people ideally want to do is to um, make a hypothesis and go out and confirm that hypothesis. But we have to come to terms with the fact that on, science is really about falsifying hypotheses. 
<laughs> and this is what we do in medicine, for example. I know this sounds like a very negative message, but in, in medicine, for example, if a, a company develops a new drug, then what they do is to test it and test it and test it on theoretically and in the test tube and on laboratory animals and on small samples of human volunteers and so forth. And they keep testing it to see if it fulfills the predictions that are made of it, if it cures the illness. So scientists are really looking, when they develop a drug, they're looking to check at every single step that the, the, the drug is doing what's predicted of it. And I think in our sciences we have strayed a little bit from that, um, that, that uh, uh, correct scientific path mm-hmm. in that instead of looking just checking and checking and checking to, to see if our hypothesis is failing. Uh, and, and if it doesn't fail, we have to conclude that we can continue with it. Instead, we're assuming the plume hypothesis is correct, and we're just going out to try to prove that that's right. And I think scientists are coming around to this other slightly counterintuitive way of working, which is where we really need to be. You know, in terms of general... Um uh, occurrences uh, that are happening, um, f- for example, with the the recent um, volcanic eruption in Japan uh, at Mount Ontake, uh, can you explain it was why that was not predictable? Well, prediction is sometimes difficult because um, although we may see signs of volcanic ir- unrest, in particular volcanoes, um, volcanoes are often rather restless without eruptions occurring. So um, there were earthquakes measured in that volcano before it erupted, but earthquakes occur in volcanoes a lot of the time, and then there's no eruption. So, um, of course, that was an extremely unfortunate thing to happen, and uh, such disasters do occasionally happen. Um, But predicting either earthquakes or volcanic eruptions is not a perfect science, because it's often easy when something has occurred, an earthquake or an eruption, to look back and say, oh, well, X and Y happened. That was clearly a precursory signal. But it's very difficult to say beforehand. Mm, a priori, yeah. When, yes, when, when it's something that happens quite commonly without a disaster happening. So I'm afraid this was just a, a very unfortunate thing, and, and that Many times volcanoes do take a long time to warm up and they, they give off many signals. There's, there's volcanic tremor observed and very small eruptions happening just to begin with. This often happens and of course then it's possible to um, uh, prevent any loss of life. But I'm afraid there are, on a small number of occasions, um, there can be you know, this just sudden disaster with very little warning. It's uh, it's quite interesting how you've been able to highlight some of the, you know, events or phenomena in, in geophysics. What other mysteries out there are, you know, are capturing scientists' attention right now? Well, there are many interesting things going on. Another area in which I'm working is um, in uh, trying to minimize the amount of um, anthropogenic carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere. So um, there are a number of ways in which Earth scientists are trying to contribute to this. Um, One is carbon capture and storage, where um, man-made carbon dioxide is uh, 
actually captured at power stations and it's stored in the earth, not vented into the atmosphere. And uh, another area is geothermal. So I'm currently working on a geothermal project where um, uh, the uh, um, technology we're trying to develop is to drill deep into hot rock, hydrofracture the rock to um, break it up and form a heat exchanger, and then to extract heat from the ground. And uh, that, uh, that uh, is a carbon dioxide uh, minimal technology as well. So um, I think as people become more and more aware of the catastrophe of driving the Earth's uh, climate into an irreversible, you know, catastrophic change situation. Um, the the demands on Earth scientists and our responsibility to contribute to developing alternative energy sources is um, is, is a very important challenge that we have to pick up. And you know, you mentioned um, geothermal energy. Uh, you know, what what is the latest science in terms of their stability or the ability to uh, extract energy economically? Well, um, geothermal energy is generally um, extracted from volcanic rocks because that tends to be where uh, the, the heat gradient in the earth, the thermal gradient in the earth is highest. So the challenge there is that um, in a geothermal area where there's a lot of water, uh, where you can just drill a drill hole and hot water comes up out of it. I mean, uh, there it's quite straightforward to um, exploit the geothermal energy. But the problem is um, throughout most of the world, uh, there's geothermal energy, there's heat in the earth, but there isn't the abundance of water. So uh, what we have to do is to try to engineer um, permeability, so to speak. We have to um, break up the rock so that it has lots of pathways and we can pump cold water in and uh, draw it up um, hot um, from a producing well. So this is a technology that's uh, being worked on and um, this uh, received quite a lot of um, government resources, um, especially in America after the um, 2008 um, financial catastrophe. There was a large government um, stimulus package and a lot of that money went into trying to develop environmentally friendly energy sources like geothermal. So in fact, this has resulted in quite a surge forward in the technology, and um, I think we're making very good progress. You also mentioned about the uh, uh, sequestration, and that's the process in which you supposedly pump the exhaust CO2 into uh, caverns, is that right? That's correct, yes. And that's uh, using, uh, I presume, techniques that the oil industry has been using for quite a while. That's right, yes. The um, oil industry is quite heavily involved in that. Um, the challenge that that technology faces is that um, if you pump gases or fluid into the ground, then you will create earthquakes. Mm-hmm. So um, the geothermal work I was just describing, um, when when we pump high-pressure fluid into the geothermal areas to try to break the rock up, this causes little earthquakes. Um, in that case, the earthquakes are quite deep. They may be several kilometers deep, and they're generally very small. 
But the problem with carbon dioxide sequestration is that the carbon dioxide is often pumped um, into quite shallow reservoirs, and it seems to be uh, significantly seismogenic. It creates earthquakes which can be of nuisance to local populations. So, of course, one way of dealing with that is to sequester the carbon dioxide in places which are a long way from where people live. So if there are magnitude 2 or even magnitude 3 earthquakes occurring, then it won't trouble people or cause any damage. So um, this it, it's inducing earthquakes, which is the biggest challenge with carbon capture. Are you also involved in trying to find ways of extracting more oil or fossil fuels from the ground or the ocean? Um, of course, uh, the famous um, fracking um, uh, technique, uh, shale gas fracking, where um, high-pressure fluid is pumped into shale, oil shale, to extract the gas. Uh, this is, of course, big news at the moment. It's widely used in America, and it's brought the price of gas down very much in America. Um, there's a lot of posi positivity about it in America because much of the shale gas is extracted from areas where people don't live, so any small earthquakes that are induced aren't a problem. And also it's made a significant impact to making America more energy self-sufficient, which of course is a, a, a great political concern. <laughs> However, um, it, it's beginning to be considered here in the UK and one or two projects are already underway. But of course, it's a different situation here in the UK because the UK is very densely populated and it, there's almost nowhere where shale gas fracking could go ahead without it being close to where people live. Um, so uh, people are already aware that the technology causes earthquakes and many people are very uncomfortable with that in the UK because some um, people are just simply not used to earthquakes in the UK. So uh, this is uh, this is a um, challenge that um, uh, developing this technology has to stand up to. Okay, great. Well, um, it's you know it's been a really interesting conversation about you know the current trends in in geophysics and then also on your research uh, regarding the, uh, the you know the dynamic of plumes in in the mantles. Um, I guess we're running a little bit out of time right now. And you know, are there uh, Last words you'd like to add about yourself or your work? Um, well, um, regarding the um, plume work, um, people, scientists are in such a buzz over this. This is so exciting. You know, it's not every day that a, a really fundamental paradigm change may be occurring in, in the subject. And um, if any of your listeners are interested in more details, I'd um, point them to our website, which is www.mantleplumes.org and uh, if they care to visit that they'll find lots and lots of articles written by many many different people something like 700 people have contributed to putting together this website which tries to host the discussion between the plume hypothesis and the shallow hypothesis which other scientists um, prefer so um, please visit the website and uh, get interested <laughs> because it's something really exciting Great. Um, Professor Folger, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure, Frank. Thank you. 
Alright, and we were just talking to Professor Folger, uh, Professor of Geophysics at Durham University in United Kingdom. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can email us at science at grox.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. Thank you.